Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of Banal of America Audio, Season 2. It is December 9th, 2006, and this week our guest is Bill Ryan, creator of Serpo.org, the website that chronicles the infamous Project Serpo story, which burst onto the scene in Esoterica late last year and has become one of the big stories over the last 12 months. As I alluded to last week, I kind of poo-pooed the Serpo story when it first broke. I didn't put much credence into it. I was tempted to delve into it on Banal of America Audio Season 1, but I said, let's give it a year and see how it all shakes out, and then we'll be able to really get a good look at what the Serpo story is all about. That's pretty much what we're doing here this week with Bill Ryan. As I said, he's the creator of Serpo.org. He has been on the front lines of the Serpo story since it began. And we're going to be talking about just that, how it all began, the reaction to the Serpo story, and its amazing explosion onto the scene in Esoterica. Going chronologically from the very beginning, we follow all the twists and turns of the Serpo story. We are not going to be wasting your time with what the culture of the aliens is and what kind of games they play on their little planet Serpo. No, no, we're going to be looking at the story behind the story, and hopefully we can glean some answers as to how this esoteric phenomenon came about. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Bill Ryan, let me give a little bit of background on him. Bill Ryan has a BSc in mathematics with physics and psychology from Bristol University in the UK and followed this with a brief stint in teaching. For the last 27 years, he has been a management consultant specializing in personal and team development, leadership training, and executive coaching. Major long-term clients have included BAE Systems Limited, formerly British Aerospace, Hewlett-Packard, and PricewaterhouseCoopers. In November of 2005, he inaugurated the Project Serpo website. The report of an alleged disclosure in stages of a U.S. alien exchange program claimed to have taken place over 40 years ago. While he had been interested in UFOs, free energy research, and alternative medicine, he is trained as a kinesiologist for over 30 years, his first contact with the UFO community at large occurred after establishing the Serpo website. His websites are serpo.org and projectcamelot.org. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on October 26, 2006. Bill Ryan on Banal of America Audio, Season 2. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Been All of America Audio. I want to welcome as my guest, Bill Ryan. He is the man behind Serpo.org, the website, uh, and also ProjectCamelot.org, which is a website that features uh, video interviews with some big names in Esoterica. Bill uh, was primarily responsible for col- for collecting uh, the infamous Serpo postings by Anonymous that began about one year ago. We're about a week away from the one-year anniversary of Serpo the beginnings of Serpo, and um, a lot of people are talking about Serpo. It's been talked about big all last year, and a lot of people wanted me to get a Serpo guest on. I want to take my time, let this story percolate a little bit, and uh, now that we're at the one-year anniversary, I think we can look back on the past year and and discuss not only Serpo, the story that is Serpo, but also the story behind the story. How did Serpo come about? How did it become this big phenomenon that everybody was talking about throughout all of 2006? Uh, we're going to cover all that and tons, tons more here tonight with Bill Ryan. Bill, welcome to the show. 
Tim, thank you for talking to me. It's a great pleasure to be here. No problem. I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, I've been following this Serpo story as much as I can over the past year, and uh, I'm really, really excited about digging into this with you. Um, let's start out first with your bio, the background, you know, the basic background information. How, What was your life like before you started into this, and uh, what brought you interested in the UFO phenomenon right up until the Serpo story started? I'm tempted to make a joke out of that and say, well, before all this, my life is very quiet. <laughs> Um, actually, I, I suppose in terms of ufology, I consider myself, up until certainly the SERPA releases uh, started coming forward, and, uh, and I was the Joe Nobody in the, uh, in the audience, so to speak, who put out my hand and volunteered to build a website for that. Up until then, I was, uh, I was a management consultant specializing in team building, personal development, leadership training, that kind of stuff. I work with people, and so I'm used to talking in front of audiences of people, which is how come I'm happy to be talking to you on the, on the phone here in this interview for as long as you want to. I, um, I'm a mountaineer, so I enjoy taking measured risks, and I don't, uh, I, I enjoy adventure, and I enjoy uh, activity, and I enjoy challenge, and I guess that this is something which my involvement in SERPA has brought me in some small measure. I, um, I've done a little bit of kind of presentational work in my work with companies and corporations. I used to put together material for executives to consider proposals, that kind of stuff. And so I know a little bit about presenting information. Now, of course, um, many other of your listeners will as well. So, I mean, it's not an exclusive area. But it was because I'm, I've been interested in uh, what you call uh, esoteria, I guess, for Ever since, ever since I was a kid, I was interested in, you know, um, in the unexplained. Yeah. Sure. In the unexplained, some people call it the paranormal, um, and I've always been interested in in things that just kind of push the boundaries of established knowledge, push the boundaries of science, and nothing gets me more interested than a really good mystery with a lot of question marks after it, you know. Um, and Serpa was one of those, and I actually think not only did it, it, it sort of um, dare I say it, touched something within me, but it touched something within an awful lot of people. Yeah. And you remarked a few moments ago about how it really got a lot of people buzzing in 2006, and and that's really been the case. And it, it, it it's really fascinating just to explore how come this has caught the imagination so much. Yeah. One reason why I think it's caught the imagination is because the story itself is contentious. And if you dive into the details of the releases, which I have just posted verbatim, I, I take no responsibility yeah. for the content of the website. I do take responsibility for the presentation to some degree. Mm -hmm. But um, but in some uh, cases, the presentation is poor because I was, I was asked to to present things exactly as they were received, um, errors and all, and in some cases it makes it very hard to read. So let me back up on what I was saying then. The content is contentious, and I think this is one reason why it's stirred up all kinds of debate. And the debate um, has been very spirited. The positions which people have occupied in debate have sometimes been quite extreme. People have got very angry about this, saying it's a hoax and saying that I'm a hoaxer and I've invented it all myself. I mean, this is nonsense. I haven't at all. I'm just a reporter. Mm -hmm. um, if I'd, I mean, <laughs> one of the 
uh, factors to consider when debating the veracity of the story is is the interesting twist which I like to put. That if somebody was inventing this, they would probably have done a better job. Um, and we can dive into that later about the various anomalies in the story and um, how come some people don't like the data. Yeah. Um, I think it's also struck a chord because there's something about the 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 extraordinary excitement. It's like supposing it was true. The idea of humankind actually venturing out, not just beyond, you know, um, uh, our small reach to the moon, but beyond this solar system and 40 light years on to another star system entirely. It's rather like the way that the old worlders must have felt about the voyage of Columbus, um, or even before that, the voyage of Leif Erikson across the Atlantic, when they didn't know where they were going. They didn't know if there was anything there. They didn't know they'd ever come back. They didn't know what they'd find. Um, going from the old world to the new world and really reaching out. And of course, this is one of the, it's a sort of modern archetype, which has caught the imagination in many of our modern science fiction myths. Yeah. And I use the word myth in the true sense of the word, meaning a myth is, is a story that, that contains an important truth or contains important elements for us to consider, which can help us, um, uh, which can help, which can help us consider and understand our nature as human beings in the world, you know. Yeah. And, um, and there's a real myth here about what it takes to make contact with an alien species and to, and to travel to their home planet and to survive that journey and then to come back. All of this, um, uh, many of the great myths which we have enjoyed, um, uh, in modern times we enjoyed Lord of the Rings, thousands of years ago they enjoyed Homer's The Odyssey and the Iliad, and these are voyages and they're journeys faced with danger and difficulty and confusion and, and, um, uh, uh, and an uncertain outcome. And all of this is told here in a modern way. And in the messages which I've received on the website, I've, you know, I've had things that have just blown me away completely. I've, I've had elderly people, you know, saying, God bless you, I never thought I would hear this information in my lifetime. Thank you so much, you know. Wow. And it's almost like it doesn't really matter if it's true. Um, now, I say that from one particular point of view. That's not actually my own uh, position. But it's almost as if some people were thinking, you know, I don't even mind whether it's true or not. It's just an incredible story. And it's really grabbed me um, uh, my imagination. And yeah. this is what other people have been saying. Yeah. And then, of course, there's a reverse reaction to that. Some people have come very angry because they say, this isn't true. How can you put this stuff on the net? This is irresponsible. And as you said right at the beginning, I do share your view. My view is that this is not all true. I don't think it can be. Um, there are too many anomalies. And then, of course, um, we, can, uh, we can have some fun discussing about whether or not those anomalies are deliberately inserted or have accidentally found their way in there, or whether it's a mixture of both. Yeah. And there's a lot of muddy bathwater, so to speak, but if there's a baby in there, we mustn't throw it out. And exactly. this is my position. I was asked a while back if I was an advocate of the story, and my position is that I'm not an advocate of the story. I'm an advocate of people being willing to suspend their disbelief for long enough to consider whether the story might have merit. And I think the story does have merit, because for... for for a couple of decades now, as some of your listeners may remember if they've been studying the subject for a little while, there have been rumors circulating about an exchange program really for quite a long time. Yeah. 
Linda Howe has reported it, Bill Hamilton has reported it, John Lear has reported it, Robert Ebenegger reported it, um, Bill Cooper um, talked about 16 people going on an exchange program. Linda Howe said there were only three. Maybe these details don't matter, but if you consider the possibility of alien contact, which many of your listeners will accept, probably otherwise they wouldn't be listening. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> if we assume from there that contact and communication has been established, which is a pretty reasonable bet over a 50-year period, yeah. those are the two huge assumptions. And then after that, it's a much smaller leap of the imagination to think that, well, it's only natural. The next step from that is that those guys would have invited us back home to their place. Exactly. Now, for the people who are new to this whole thing uh, and haven't heard the Serpo story, uh, let's talk about the actual Serpo story, like what what the story was. The, it was an exchange program. Purportedly, the Serpo story as we know it that came out uh, starting last November uh, was an exchange program that went on between the U.S. and a group of aliens from the planet known as Serpo. Uh, tell me, go in-depth on that. Let's give the story for people who haven't even heard from the beginning. Okay. I'll give the headlines first as best I can. Okay. The story was that in 1965, after contact had been made with the same group of aliens that crashed at Roswell, one of whom survived, the story was that 12 American astronauts went on a trip to their home planet, which is the fourth planet of Zeta Reticuli, Two, I believe. Um, that's a binary star system which is 40 light years away, and Zeta Reticuli will probably be well known to many of your listeners. And they stayed there for 13 years. Eight of them returned. Uh, two of them died somewhere along the way, and two of them, most interestingly, decided to stay and were not ordered to return. Um, that's the smallest nutshell that the story can be um, crammed into, I believe. Yeah. Um, and then after that, as we mentioned a little earlier, things uh, become a little bit contentious with the details of the story, mm -hmm. their internal consistencies, uh, how this could have happened, and so on and so forth. Okay. Now let's talk about, now let's sort of back up from that and talk about how the story actually burst on the scene. It started on a email mailing list that was uh, run by one Victor Martinez, correct? Victor Martinez, that's right. Victor Martinez runs, um, uh, it's kind of like a news list that he sends out to a group of people on his mailing list items of interest or information to do with ufology and related subjects. Yes. And last November, he had about 130 people on his list. I was one of them. Uh, I actually arrived on that list completely by accident, and I was in the company of people who were of far greater stature than myself. One of the things that made his list um, a little uh, different from most email discussion lists was that there were many UFO researchers, intelligence officers, military personnel. It was quite a who's who, I suppose, of people in the ufology and intelligence and military community um, who were interested in, in those things at, uh, at that time. And, yeah. uh, and, and he received a message from an anonymous source 
that was apparently one of a small group of people from the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, who were releasing this information. And he got this information by email on the 1st of November last year, and he streamed it to his list on the 2nd of November. And the way uh, this list operates is that um, it's very simple. It's as simple as it can get. What he does is he simply um, copies everything on an open CC to all the email addresses which he has. Yeah. And then if anyone wants to reply or make a comment, then they just hit reply all, and then the discussion goes backwards and forwards like that. Mm -hmm. And as soon as Victor had streamed this to, uh, this to what at that point was 130-odd people, um, there was a very great deal of interest from quite a few names who your listeners, I think, would um, recognize that people like, um, I'm trying to think, who responded early at that time. Uh, we had Hal Putoff, we had Bruce Maccabee, we had um, uh, Christopher Green, Kit Green, who used to run the, uh, the Weird Desk at the CIA. We had um, Bob Collins. Um, we had all sorts of people who jumped in. We had Bill Hamilton. Um, all jumped into this debate, all knocking this story around about whether it was true or not and so on and so forth um, and what it was all about. And Victor, bless him, is not very computer uh, literate. The extent of his system was, was web TV. And some of your listeners may know that web TV is not a sophisticated system. It doesn't have a lot of data storage capacity, for example. Yeah. And after um, uh, about six or seven of these these um, fairly long messages had come in and were being streamed to the list by Victor, it became, I think, two things became apparent and were actually being discussed on the list. One was that there should be some way of archiving all this information. And another was that more people other than this 130 um, should be able to hear about it rather than just in this little closed group. And I had some time on my hands. And as I said uh, a little earlier, um, I was just the guy in the audience who stuck my hand up and said, well, okay, I'll do that. I'll build a website. I don't mind. And Victor said, thank you very much. That's wonderful. And, uh, and I got stuck into that. And if, if my guardian angel had flown in through the window and said, you know what, uh, in 11 and a half months from now, you'll still be talking about this on the radio to thousands of people who are still curious about this story, I just would not have believed them. I never even gave it a thought that, that my own involvement would be such that um, with Victor not wanting to talk publicly to anybody about this, simply because he's an employed English teacher and he's a very private man in that respect. Yeah. There's nobody else for people to talk to about the story because everybody else is behind the black curtain. Exactly. And so everyone's been phoning me uh, saying, you know, um, what do you think about the story and can you represent it? And I've kind of become a spokesperson. Exactly, yeah. Which, which I don't mind at all. Um, it's not what I signed up for, but I'm very happy to do it. And as I, uh, as I said a little earlier, as long as people understand I'm the representative of the story, but I'm not a proponent of the story. I think there's truth there. I think it's fascinating. I think there are important things in there. I think there are important things to think about. But I'm not going around pushing the story saying, look, you better believe this because it's all true and get into fights with people because that's not yeah, what yeah. I'm here to do. 
It's just really to get people thinking. And I think that that is exactly what's happened. And this is why so many people, even right now, 12 months later, will be tuning into your show to hear about it. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, and now during that first month or so of the Servo story, that's when it really sort of exploded within the mailing list there. I wanted to ask about two people. And, and throughout this interview tonight, I should point out that I'm referencing the PDF file that can be found at Serpo.org that's a collection of the Serpo postings. So if I reference something, the listeners can go there, they can download the PDF file, and they'll know what I'm talking about. In that first month, when the Servo story exploded, I found this pretty interesting. Maybe you can talk about uh, this person as much as you can, or at least their role in the story. Uh, right after the initial anonymous posting, there's a posting from Gene Laskowski, who, and uh, this may win someone an esoteric trivia contest someday, uh, Gene Laskowski was actually, I noticed, and was very and was very surprised to see that he was the man who dropped the Serpo name first. It wasn't the first anonymous poster. It was uh, Gene Laskowski responding and saying, you know, this is called Serpo. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that posting, um, who this Gene Laskowski is? And, um, you know, it sounded like he was just as knowledgeable about it as the original anonymous post. That's right. And there's another player in there as well who also claimed a great deal of knowledge, and this was Paul McGovern. Yep, he was next on my list here. <laughs> yeah. Um, Gene Laskowski, his real name is Gene Lakes, and I am told, I've never spoken to him, I've never even corresponded with him. He's a very shadowy figure behind the scenes. When I say shadowy, I don't mean that in any kind of disparaging way. I just mean that nobody knows anything about him. Um, but... I am told by people who do uh, claim to know him well, people like Bob Collins, um, who wrote the book Exempt from Disclosure, yep. where I believe Gene Laskowski uh, is also mentioned. Uh, they say that he was the ex-head of security at Area 51. And, oh, wow. and he's, uh, that puts him, I guess, close to the heavyweight division of intelligence officers. Yeah. Um, somebody who has that kind of responsibility probably knows quite a lot about quite a lot of things. Exactly. Um, what a lot of people have speculated, and I would agree with them, is that when this anonymous source piped up, and then immediately after that, um, Gene, well, I'm actually going to call him Gene Lake simply because it's easier to say, and that's his real name. Um, uh, Gene Lakes and Paul McGovern both piped up instantly with details of the story, and you're, and you're absolutely correct that there were some things which either Paul or Gene mentioned first and were then kind of subsumed into the totality of the Serpo story yeah. as if they had come from the anonymous source. For example, Paul McGovern was the first person to mention the existence of the 3,000-page report. And then after that, Anonymous carried on talking about it as if he had mentioned it. And there were – and so there's a lot of kind of um, uh, what I could call circumstantial forensic evidence, if you like, in those early stages to suggest that um, Mr. Anonymous and Gene Lakes and Paul McGovern were actually – um, releasing this information in harness, yeah. that they that they knew about this and were acting together and were acting in league and they were communicating with each other behind the scenes. I think that that's pretty well assumed by most people who've been following the story closely. Okay. And what can you tell us about uh, Paul McGovern? You, you gave us some pretty good information about Gene Lake there. Uh, what do you know about Paul McGovern? I know very little about 
Paul McGovern. Um, uh, he works for the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is where this whole release is supposed to have come from. Mm -hmm. We knew at an early stage, because Victor told us, because he had been told this in private messages from the anonymous source, that this all came from a group of six DIA personnel, three of whom were employed and three of whom were retired. And um, later on, Victor actually stated that 85% of the information came from his anonymous source. Yes. Uh, 15% came from from Paul McGovern, and sorry, 13% came from Paul McGovern, and um, and the occasional 2% came from Gene Lakes, and Victor uh, seems to have worked that out. I never saw any of the original messages, and I know that Victor did some editing and some cutting and pasting because Victor was concerned about the presentation of the material, and at heart he's an editor, and so. The original messages from these people, and this is something that's had one or two, one or two folks tearing their hair out. They've all been deleted by the web TV system because Victor, oh man, because Victor never kept them. And I remember telling Hal Putoff this, who, as you may know, is a scientist. He's one of the world's greatest scientists, really. Mm -hmm. And when I told him that we had no source data, he couldn't. He's like, "What? You've got no raw data? You know? Yeah. You mean I've got nothing that I can do? You know? I, I can I, I can subject to scientific scrutiny?" And I said, "No, it's all gone. You know, because because for Victor, the important thing was the message and the presentation." Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so there we're starting to look into the story behind the story. Yeah. Um, and now also in this first month, there's uh, one-fourth additional uh, post that I found kind of interesting, and that was uh, titled as being from an Anonymous 2. Um, I didn't see any other Anonymous 2 posters uh, in the PDF file of all the postings. So uh, what was the story with this all of a sudden per additional person that came in and added their, their voice and then bailed out on the whole thing? Well... I have absolutely no idea. I mean, um, he was only you see he was only called anonymous too by Victor. Okay. Um, his name was provided to Victor, and Victor honoured his request to keep his identity confidential, and so he called him anonymous too. Okay. I I, I don't actually know who that was, and Victor has never told me, um, and and I mean I never asked him. Mm -hmm. The initial anonymous source, um, he did actually give his name which is a pseudonym, but Victor, to be on the safe side, called him anonymous, yeah. um, which has been this kind of, uh, this word that has kind of threaded itself through these super releases and almost acquired a kind of um, uh, an extraordinary mystical meaning in its own right, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, in that first release, and in fact in all the other releases that Victor received, it came from somebody called Sylvester McCoglin. And um, Sylvester McCoglin itself is a pseudonym. And what is very interesting there is that very recently um, it was discovered that Sylvester and McCoglin were two of the uh, of a particular individual's um, ancestors' names. I think one was the grand grandfather and one was the grandmother, or something like that. I can't quite remember the details. And this was uh, this person was an elderly individual with intelligence connections who was on Victor's list for a while. And then as soon as I piped up, not mentioning this person's name, but saying that there was an individual who had 
um, the word Sylvester and McCoglin in his ancestors' names, this individual very quietly asked himself to be removed from Victor's list, and of course he was. Oh. And, and so it becomes reasonably clear that there are a number of people who are, who are behind this and who are involved in this and who have a lot of knowledge. Yeah. I think that's the most important thing to state. This is not a kid in a basement making it all up. Mm -hmm. There's something going on here. And if it's a hoax, it's a well-organized hoax, or it's a hoax which has got a lot of people's complicity in it. Mm -hmm. and, and the paradox that then is attached to that is that if it's a hoax with which a lot of people have put their shoulder to and have decided to get together to and perpetrate, then they really haven't done a very good job in making it a convincing hoax because the whole thing is a shot full of, of holes in a Swiss cheese. Yeah. And you can go to any any bookstore and look at the science fiction story, uh, uh, the science fiction section, and find stories written by experienced science fiction writers with, with well-crafted, well-created worlds which are consistent in their um, in their physics and their presentation in every aspect of what it takes to make a convincing world. It's, it's not hard to do. And you would have thought that with that if these intelligence people were inventing something like this, the first thing that they, I mean, they would have easy access to scientists who would have said, well, actually, you have to make these numbers work because this is going out to astrophysicists and they're going to immediately spot if, if, if these, um, if, for instance, the astronomical measurements don't seem to correspond to Kepler's orbital laws. Yeah. And yet, the very fact that the thing was shot full of holes, to some people, including myself, it suggests that this was not a hoax because they would have made a better job of it. Mm -hmm. To other people, for them, it's evidence that actually what's happening here is that this is some kind of a sociological experiment on the entire UFO community just to see how much nonsense they would take, you know, just to see how credible and credulous they are. Yeah. Um, I don't believe that because I think there would be easier ways of doing it. There's something going on here that seems to me to be important. And that was um, confirmed for me in the form of an email that I received from another anonymous source that came to me directly through the SERPO website contact form from Los Alamos National Laboratories. Mm -hmm. And I replied straight back to this individual with the email bounce and it wasn't a proper email address because on the contact form you can put in any old email address. Yeah. Um, which that was the idea of the contact form, so that people could contact me anonymously, mm -hmm. of which more later. But um, this particular individual said very simply, they said, the SERPO information is 80% true and contains 20% fiction. This is part of a controlled release of information by the U.S. government, period. That's what it said. And I, I stared at that for quite a long time. And it just rang true. Now, I, I can't prove that that wasn't a kid in the basement. Yeah. But I think if it was a kid in the basement, they would have elaborated at great length. This was a one-liner. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that you would get from a deep throat, just give you a snippet of information and then walk away. Mm -hmm. And I've actually had quite a few of those, none of which offer any substantial proof to a skeptic. But they all point to the fact that there's something going on here which contains truth and should be taken seriously. I've even had people email me anonymous, um, 
anonymously saying, you know, um, this is incredible information. Where did you get it all from? You know, I don't believe you can be guessing because you've got half of it right and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. You know? um, and then I get back to them and then there's nobody there. Um, so it's, it's all been a pr prolonged, protracted tease. And as I said just a moment ago, there's no evidence at all to prove that there's anything in the story. But there's a huge amount of circumstantial evidence that, um, choose your metaphor, that there's a baby in the bathwater or that there's, there's fire somewhere behind all the smoke. There's a lot of smoke, you know. But there does seem to be something happening. And to go right back to where we started, this is what I think has caught the public's interest. Yeah. Now, uh, let's talk about some of the key events that went on in the second month of the Serpo story as it unfolded. Um, one of the, one of the uh, points uh, I think that you said it was uh, one of the more infamous moments during this whole Serpo thing uh, was during a posting, was in a posting on December 8th, 2005, where Anonymous said that he had five pictures and he was going to roll them out for everybody to see. And, of course, those pictures never surfaced. Um, talk about uh, that, that, that posting, that promise, and uh, what, what that sort of ha effect that had on the Serpo story. Yeah, well, right. Um, I had this feeling that you were going to bring that up. That, that certainly is infamous. And um, I have since berated Victor for actually um, mentioning that because it was, it, it was a little silly. And, I mean, I'm don't mean any criticism of him personally at all. Mm -hmm. he's a, and, and he's taken this on the chin so many times since then. Oh, I'm sure. But, but um, it's much better to, to, to under-promise and over-deliver the other way around. And this was exactly. a huge over-promise with no delivery whatsoever. Yeah. And, of course, in many people's eyes, that was, um, that was the nail in the coffin for the fact that the whole thing was a load of nonsense, you know, yeah. because... Um, uh, because, you know, of course these photos don't exist, of course they're never going to appear, and you fell for it, and blah, blah, blah. Um, I've since berated myself for reporting what otherwise would only have been known among a very small group of people. But I'd kind of made this commitment to everyone that I would report everything that Victor posted, just, you know, uh, just as sort of a dumb messenger, and that's what I did, and that's why... That's why I stated it on the website, because he stated it in his posting. And maybe that was naive. But it certainly generated a huge amount of discussion about the photos and why they haven't appeared and, and, and do they exist and could they exist. And um, jumping forwards, uh, if you don't mind, then That's fine. Um, some of your listeners will be, will be aware that I experienced in... in uh, one of the most extraordinary 20 minutes of my life. I, I experienced a cloak and dagger episode where I was, I met with an intelligence officer in a hotel room and was shown five photographs. I was not permitted to copy them and I wasn't permitted to keep them. And I've described them on the website. They're all, as they're described in some detail in the section which is called updates, which is I call it that because it's my personal update rather than a formal information release in the section on serpo.org called updates. Mm -hmm. Long piece which I wrote on the 7th of July where I described this whole thing. And, and to cut that a little bit short, there were three photographs that really weren't worth anything at all. There was one that looked like it could have been, there's some weird shaped rocks that were in a desert that 
could have been on this planet, you know. Yeah. Um, and the, the fifth photograph took my breath away because what it depicted was a desert scene. Uh, it's a desert landscape taken from a slightly elevated viewpoint, like a, a sand dune or, or a low hill or something, with dark storm clouds in the sky, and then on the horizon there were two suns setting. There were two suns setting. And it looked like the kind of thing that you would take a photograph of if you happened to be there and you happened to have a camera. You'd just take the shot. You know, yeah. It was just a stunning landscape. And all I can say is that it looked real. Now, no one else can offer opinion on that, um, and you know, because I haven't seen the damn thing. And um, it really took my breath away. I've thought about that picture many, many times since then, and I would love to see it again. The other four weren't really worth anything, but that one really, really did it for me. And it opens up another area of the story, if once again you'll allow me just to jump about Go ahead. Just a little bit, because it connects directly with this photograph issue. Okay. So one of the criticisms of the story is that, according to our own astronomical observations, Zeta Reticuli is what's known as a distant binary, which means that the two stars are in a gravitational, uh, are, are permanently gravitationally connected with each other. But actually, they're quite a long way apart from each other. They're a tenth of the light year apart. And if we were in a planet orbiting one of the suns, the other sun would just be a little bright speck in the sky. We wouldn't see, you know, two similar-sized suns in the sky. You'd only see that if the binary star was called what's, uh, what's called a close binary. And a lot of people have got upset and um, have been skeptical of the story for that very reason, that, that, that this is at odds with what we seem to know about Zeta Reticuli. Yeah. And from then, you just make a little leap and you say, well, look, maybe it wasn't Zeta Reticuli at all. Maybe that's part of the 20% fiction. Maybe that's part of the disinformation. Yeah. Would fit perfectly if it was Alpha Centauri, for example, if we were looking at Alpha Centauri and Proxima Centauri, because they are a close binary. They're only four light years away. And then that jumps on to the, the other area of debate, which is, well, if it was Zeta Reticuli, Sorry, if it wasn't Zeta Reticuli, why were we told that it was? Is this some kind of a disinformation ploy? Because the Ebens, which are the aliens um, that live on this um, supposed planet Serpo, that the aliens are, are the 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 Ebens are presented as kind of warm, fuzzy, friendly, you know, soccer playing, mom and pop aliens. Uh, as John Deere likes to call them yeah. a little disparagingly. Um, and a lot of people think this is a load of nonsense. This is not what the greys are like. The greys are more sinister. The greys abduct us. The greys give us frightening experiences and they stick implants up our nose and they do things like this. And they do all kinds of things that the U.S. government doesn't want us to know about. So what a wonderful way to present us with this kind of friendly, you know, um, E.T. movie type scenario, which might be a cover for something completely different. Yeah. But 
once again, I know this wasn't where this question started, but it's kind of where it all goes. Yeah. Where you started was talking to me about these photographs, which never appeared, and of course, for some, that's when they lost interest in the story. Yeah, I think it really hurt the story a lot. Now, I want to ask you about also, uh, I want. I personally want to jump ahead now. This is going to be confusing at times, I'm sure, because uh, the, we're trying to work in the chronology here, but this story, uh, we're trying to follow each strand as well. Um, now, I know there were some even purported even photos that surfaced around April or so. Uh, one of the writers for Banal of America, Leslie, is on the Victor Martinez list, and she received the pictures, but they quickly uh, uh, didn't last very long, I guess, because they were pretty bogus pictures. What do you know about this story? Uh, um, that... Um, it was a huge misunderstanding. I'm trying to remember exactly what happened there. Okay. Um, Victor sometimes likes to make jokes, and also sometimes he just passes things on saying, hey, look, I was given this picture, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. I think there was one picture that he circulated, um, which um, rather obviously had the word Andy in the corner, <laughs> uh, which um, apparently had been floating around the internet for quite a long time and basically was a guy in a Halloween mask. Um, and I think Victor Bresson did think for a moment that that was a real photograph. And once again, he, he sent it out to his list before he had time uh, to check anything out. These were not meant to be the, you know, the fabled photographs. photographs. Yeah. Um, there's another incident where I was given a photograph that I was told was, you know, was either EBE-1 or very similar to EBE-1. And then a lot of people jumped on me saying, look, this has been on the internet forever and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And clearly it was a model. He, he, uh, comparing it with other pictures, you could actually see where it was just a bust and it only had, you know, um, below the forearm, it didn't have any arms and so on and so forth. It was just like a classical bust of an, um, of an alien. But uh, before I... I um, published that that image myself, being very clear to say that this was a purported image of EBE-1. I did run it past this character who, wearing my other hat, which is um, uh, one of the two people involved in Project Camelot that we might have time to talk about later. Oh, we'll definitely talk about that. Uh, um, uh, uh, we were in, in touch with this guy called Mr. X, and the connection between Mr. X and Serpo was that he got in touch with me via the Serpo website contact form. He didn't have anything to say about Serpo. He said he'd never heard of an exchange program or he never he didn't know anything about it. But he did have the astonishing experience when, when uh, he was a young man in the mid-80s, working for a six-month period as a glorified, classified file clerk handling top-secret documents and films and photographs and even alien artifacts, um, filing and categorizing these things from big bags that were brought in um, uh, for him to open under armed guard. It was an extraordinary scenario. And, and I ran this photograph past him, and he said, yeah. He said, I saw two different kinds of aliens when I, in the course of my work, and he said, that was definitely one of them. He said, it could even be him. And so I thought, well, that's good enough for me. I'm going to say that this is a purported photograph of EB-1. But at no point were these meant to be the Serpo photographs. They were just kind of images that, that emerged somewhere
somewhere along the way when we were all going along this kind of slightly complicated ride together. Definitely, definitely. Well, I wanted to clear that up. I wanted to uh, bring that up. I should give kudos to uh, BanalofAmerica.com's Leslie. She's the one who actually, she's been following the Serbo story closer than I could possibly imagine for the last year or so. She uh, she had written about it at BanalofAmerica.com, and I wanted to ask about that because it, that that uh, column actually generated a lot of interest in and of itself. So okay, well, let me talk to She's me. listening to this now. I invite her to get in touch with me directly. Maybe we can straighten some things out, and I'll be as straight as I possibly can be. Excellent, excellent. Well, I'm sure she's going to enjoy the interview. Um, why don't you, uh, let's flesh out a little bit about this private meeting uh, before we move on. It uh, wasn't just a meeting to discuss to, for the guy just to hand you the pictures and then he just, just sat there. Well, what, what did he have to say and how did it come about in the first place? Maybe I can find out some new information here. Okay. Um, there isn't really any new information to be told. There are things obviously about that which... Um, which I'm not at liberty to say. Yeah. I've, I've been asked clearly, you know, not to reveal uh, the man's identity or the location or the time or anything, anything like that, which makes it all a bit of a cloak and dagger thing. Yeah. Um, I was given to understand that I would shortly be receiving these photographs to post, and the impression which I got is that this man would then contact me later saying, okay, here they are, you know, in electronic form so that you can post them to the net and you can do all this. Um, and then that never came. And I never heard from that person again. It's just one of the many false dawns that there'd been in the course of the story. And actually, it was quite a long time before I actually told anyone about that. I only mentioned it publicly on the 7th of July. Yeah. And yet, <laughs> this meeting was in the middle of March. Mm -hmm. So... I sat on that for a while, having learnt my lesson from the December promise of the four super photographs, including uh, one of them playing football or something like that, which, which again was um, enough to get a lot of people laughing, which even though it was true, is kind of unfortunate from a public relations point of view. I mean, it's a bit like the strawberry ice cream thing, which some yeah. of your listeners may know about. Even if it's true, it's a bit of a pity because it kind of turns it into a bit of a music hall joke and um, maybe inappropriately for the serious content. But who knows, you know? And so what I was saying there was that I'd learned my lesson from, from that. And so I sat tight on this information until I thought in the beginning of July, I really thought the whole story was over. I thought, well, I don't know what's going to happen now, but probably nothing, and therefore I might as well tell this story because it would be a great shame if nobody knew, you know. Yeah. Now, were you tempted just to grab the pictures and run right out of the room? I mean. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it would have been a wonderful thing to hang on to. It's, and, of course, you have a whole kind of Keystone Cops cartoon image to see the mic running down the street with you know, all these intelligence officers following me trying to get this photograph back of me. Yeah. Um, I don't think I got very far. But um, That's probably why the uh, intelligence sources aren't contacting me, I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was, you see, in such a situation, and it's very interesting, you see, because you never know what your own response is going to be until you find yourself in a situation like that. Yeah. Um, you know, whether one's going to be defiant or, or challenging or, you know, um, um, compliant or what. Yeah. My instinct, I found at the time, was to cooperate fully because there was the promise of much more to come. Yeah. And so my, my, my every instinct, you know, was to be very polite and courteous and to say, yes, sir, you know, absolutely. <laughs> um, and that's basically what I did. Yeah. Um, 
And if I knew then what I knew now, which was that many months later, I, you know, those photographs had not been released and there's no sign of them at all. Um, and my 10 bucks worth would be that I don't think we're ever going to see them, to be quite frank. This mm -hmm. is my, um, that's my leaning, is that yeah. I, I really think that these are not going to appear. Um, uh, I would have been um, a lot more feisty in that meeting. I would have been a lot more argumentative about why I couldn't take them away and post them immediately. Yeah. I just thought, you know, it's because he said, you know, that he had at least a couple of dozen that he could let me have within a couple of weeks and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, I was as meek as a puppy dog. And I said, well, yes, thank you very much, sir. Of you course, know. yeah. I, I, um, see, you, I see where you come from. You've got to play ball at first to see if you can get some more stuff. Now you're kind of regretting it because they didn't play ball with you. That's, <laughs> that's right. Um, and for all I know, you know, that was just a um, uh, maybe another little experiment to see how I would respond. I have absolutely no idea. But one of the 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 features of the story, which I'm sure you're going to want to go on and talk about, is how there have been twists and turns all the way through. And um, a little earlier on, we were talking about how it looks as if this is not just coming from one isolated source. It's coming from a group of people. And anyone who's worked with groups, either you know, in business or in the military or in any other environment, knows that groups can be subject to different influences, uh, yeah. to, different, um, uh, to different leaders coming forward. Uh, to, uh, maybe to differences of opinion, possibly strong differences of opinion in the group itself. And there's every suggestion that whoever is behind all this has been changing their mind periodically. Um, and that's probably something you want to go on to if you're talking about the timeline. About that's what exactly, the yeah. I was just going to say yeah. that segues perfectly into the 12-21-2005 uh, message that uh, – represents a sea change in the Serpo story, if you will. It's the last message received, uh, the last message sent to Victor Martinez from Anonymous until March 28, 2006. At that point, you, Bill Ryan, become the conduit for the Anonymous messages 12 through 16, uh, ranging from January through March, the late March. Um, let's, and, um, oh, go ahead. Yeah, uh, what's important to clarify there is that there wasn't a sudden... Um, handshake and changeover on the 21st of December, or at least, well, let's say a little while after the 21st of December, when it started to go mighty quiet. Everyone then thought that the whole thing had stopped. I had always thought of the possibility of something coming directly to myself, but no one had ever mentioned it to me. Um, and by the time we got into the second half of January, we all thought that the whole thing had dried up and that was it. Um, and then I was I was astonished when, uh, and I must say delighted as well, <laughs> not delighted in, e in an egoistic way, but delighted because it wasn't all over. And of course, I was still thinking of photographs and all this kind of stuff then. Yeah. This was only about five weeks after the promise on the 8th of December, which you just referred to. Yeah. But um, what was interesting there, you see, a lot of people have made reference to an apparent changing of the guard. And I made a reference to that possibility when we were talking about the different sort of um, ways that the winds may blow in, a, um, in something like this that's being basically orchestrated by a committee mm -hmm. um, or possibly by, you know, different imperatives coming from 
only really imagine. Yeah. Um, it occurred to me only a relatively short while ago that the reason that one reason for this, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, Victor throughout his postings up until the 21st of December had been editing the information so that it was presented in an optimum way. He would cut and paste and he would insert good um, punctuation and correct the spelling mistakes yeah. and sometimes collect a whole bunch of anonymous messages and then put them all together um, into um, into one presentation exactly yeah. as a newspaper writer would be. Uh, the newspaper editor would do. Yeah, and that references oh, back. Sure. Oh, excuse me. And that references back to where he says that eighty-five percent is from one person, fifteen uh, percent from another, that kind of thing, right? Absolutely. What he'd do is he would blend it all in together so that it was it was a readable, presentable story. Yeah. Um, and there were a lot of people uh, who appreciated it because when when I started to receive the information, I was told not to change anything. You see, and this was this was a change in style because Victor had said to me, he said, Look well he said it's astonishing that you were told not to change anything because I was always congratulated for making such a good job of presenting it. And so there was an indication that I was talking to a different person. Yeah. One reason for this might well have been that the information which I found myself getting, I think at least in the first um three quarters of the material which I got were the so-called team commander's logs. Exactly. Yeah. And the team commander's logs are highly contentious in themselves because of the way that they're presented. But I was explicitly told, don't change a thing. Um, don't change a single spelling mistake. Don't, um, you know, I, I mean, it was even acknowledged that there are errors there. In other words, don't correct any of the errors. Just present it exactly as it is. Um, and that's what I did. Whereas I believe that Victor could not have, I don't think he could have tolerated leaving it alone. I think that he could, you know, that, that there's almost a compulsion that he had to put it into a presentable form. Yeah. Um, and it may well be that because I had, I, I had previously stated in the public domain that I thought that Victor shouldn't be editing his material. I didn't say this in a critical way. It was just all part of the debate. I was fully supportive of Victor, and we've worked very closely together. But everybody knew that I did have this difference in view. And it could well have been that for these particular team commander's logs, they said, well, look, don't give them to Victor, because he's going to chew them around. Give them to Bill Ryan, because he's going to just post them exactly as we say, because he's obedient, and he's a reporter, and he's not an editor. Yeah. And and that's what I did. And every... And I... I I have to tell you that every now and then during that period, I got something and I thought, oh my goodness, you know, I don't want to post this. You know, this is, <laughs> you know, this is embarrassing. I don't want to post this. Yeah. Uh, th this is not helping the story. And I was just driven by my commitment that I would present whatever I was given because I'm just the messenger. But there were some messages that I didn't appreciate getting. And every time I was hoping for something great, you know, for some... Uh, for something really dramatic that would turn around all the naysayers, and actually all I got was more ammunition to be thrown against me. Yeah. So, and um, and what was interesting there, you see, was that um, after that there was a hiatus as well. There's another gap which happened, I think, round about March, and then again we all thought it was all over. 
And then suddenly Victor started getting it again. And on the beginning of April, I think it was, you may know better than me, he got this equipment list, which was sent to him out of the blue. And of course, he was uh, completely delighted to receive this again. Um, And I thought, okay, you know. Um, that was my few minutes on stage. Yeah, yeah. We'll get um, and I haven't heard a word from anybody since, and that's it. <laughs> okay. Uh, we'll move ahead to April in a, in a moment. Let's fine-tune this period here, because I think it's critical to the Serpo story. Yeah. Not only is there a changing of the guard in, as far as who receives the information, but as you said, there's a changing of the style. It's no longer anonymous um, answering questions and making statements. It's now moved over to a first-person perspective uh, ostensibly taken from the team commander's journals as he was leaving and going to Serpo. Yes, that's correct. And they're very weird journals. Anyone who has has read them will immediately observe that no one writes a journal like that. Um, no one writes a diary entry saying, well, now I'm doing this, and now I'm doing this, and now I'm doing this, and now I'm doing this. They pick out the key events from the day, and it's usually at the end of the day, and they're usually pretty tired, and they usually write these things in abbreviated form. And and the big clue presented itself to me in one of the entries. I can't remember which one it is, um, but it was when I noticed that there were a number of words which were spelt phonetically incorrectly, meaning, and, and a perfect example of that was when the word hostel was used as in the sense of, um, and I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something like, you know, one of the Ebens might be hostile yeah. or, or, or not hostile or something like that, meaning H-O-S-T-I-L-E. Mm-hmm. And it was spelled H-O-S-T-E-L. And there was another example which was even more um, dramatic than that, which I can't quite remember as I speak. But then it occurred to me that these were transcripts. These were audio transcripts. And some typist uh, who didn't even, who wasn't even following what he or she was transcribing, was transcribing this stuff from an audio tape. And then I thought, right, these are audio tapes. And I thought, well, if these are audio tapes, what are they audio tapes of? And then I realized that what they could have been was they could have been hypnosis sessions after the team returned back to the earth for extensive debriefing. And that's how come the whole thing read like a kind of stream of consciousness. Because when one's recalling something under under hypnosis, one is always one is always reporting what one's experiencing as if it's happening now. And if all of that was being recorded, the hypnotist's comments and questions were being taken out, and then the whole thing was transcribed. So it was like an intermediate level transcript before the whole thing was cleaned up, ready for some official report. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really do believe I was dealing with. And um, but it doesn't make good reading. It really doesn't. <laughs> um, and and when you're dealing with a story like this, you have to be very very careful. Did you uh, obviously you must have talked with Victor Martinez to compare the email addresses, or how are you sure? that the anonymous who was sending you the information was the same anonymous from the get-go or, you know, within the same organization and not some hoaxer who just wanted to stir the pot? Well, I wasn't getting that information by email, you see. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have any email addresses to compare. I was getting that information because it was being uploaded to the server directly. Ah. You see. And how this had happened was that 
back um, in um, uh, in early December, Victor and I had got ourselves uh, together on the phone because he was worried about receiving these photographs, saying that his web TV wouldn't allow him to receive large images and all of this kind of stuff. So I said, look, I've got a, I've got a smart idea here. Why don't you give him the FTP details and for some of your listeners who might not understand that, those are like the passwords mm -hmm. for for uploading information to the website, uh, to the web uh, server. It's a little yeah. bit like a safe deposit box. It's yeah. like you give them the code to the safe deposit box, and then, and then I look in the morning with the same code, and I look in there, and it's like, oh, look, there's a whole bunch of photographs. Yeah. And I thought that this was a smart idea. Mm -hmm. It would give the... Um, whoever wanted to put the information there, full anonymity, Victor thought it was a smart idea as well. And then that's how I got the information later. Okay, and this policy wasn't like uh, publicly announced on the list or anything like that. You, Victor wasn't like, we've given up the FTP thing so this guy can put the pictures up. So yeah, like, nobody knew that you were expecting someone to put things on the uh, on the website except for Victor and whoever was behind the surplus story, right? I didn't want any smart Alex hacking into the server to try and get photographs or to try and put false photographs there I mean. or anything yeah. like that. I just thought the, the fewer people who knew about this, the better. Okay, yeah. Um, I only um, came clean about that much later when it became apparent that, well, when I felt it became apparent that, that um, A, that the photographs weren't going to arrive, and B, that a lot of people had been asking me exactly the same question as you have asked me about this business of comparing the IP addresses, um, because um, that's been a whole bone of contention, as anyone following the, uh, the story closely will know, because um, some people say that the, the, the IP address sorry, that the header information of the very first email, which is the only one that Victor kept, the very first one that he received back on the 1st of November, and um, uh, matched with Rick Doty's IP address. Yeah, that was the next um, question I was going to ask you. Can you yeah. talk about that uh, that entire saga that went on in January uh, when this, this story sort of started coming around? Sure. Um, and um, I was aware that the IP addresses matched because um, uh, Victor had shared that with me at an early at an early stage, and I was very alarmed at first. Um, and then I started to um, look at this uh, rather more carefully than just at first glance, and I found out a number of different things. Um, one of which was I had the opportunity to talk with Rick personally at length. He was at the Laughlin conference um, where I first met him, which was uh, in March of this year. And subsequently in May, he came to visit myself and Kerry Cassidy at our house for two and a half hours, and we talked to him um, at length in person. And he was a very frustrated man at that point. He said, he said, if I was releasing this information, and if I had anything to do with the release of this information, he said it would have been a class act. He said the whole thing has been bungled from beginning to end. He said, he said I have made recommendations, and I have known who to make recommendations to, but they haven't followed my advice. And um, and he and if he was faking the frustration which he was showing, he deserves an Oscar. I mean, he, he, he really um, wanted this release to work in as much as he was some small part 
of what was going on in the background. I don't know what role he did play. He made it very clear that he didn't have any kind of a decision-making role. He didn't have any kind um, uh, of an executive role. And he was just in the mix somewhere along the line in as much as he knew what was happening. Yeah. Um, and what I feel is far more likely is that given Rick's own known history, known to many ufologists, He's infamous because of the Paul Benowitz episode back exactly. in, in 1980. And um, and he's kind of got that blood on his hands and it won't wash off. Mm-hmm. And I, in some ways, I kind of think it's a shame because I spoke to Rick about this at great length. And he said, he said, look, he said, I was doing my job. He said, there were a whole number of other people involved with me in AFOSI. We were all doing the same thing. He said, I was the one who got caught in public, and I'm the witch who's been burnt at the stake. He said, nobody else. He said, everyone else has got away with it. None of the other names are known. He said, it was just me who's been made a scapegoat for all of this. Um, uh, and he says, you know, that that... Uh, that he was just a young officer, he was doing his job, you know, it would have been outrageous for him to have said, you know, when he was working um, as an officer in intelligence, for him to say, no, actually, I'm not going to do that. I mean, that's not the kind of thing you do in the Air Force. You don't suddenly disobey an order when you're about 25 years old or something. Yeah. And and so, um, however, perception is everything. And Rick had been has been kind of tarred ever since with the brush of being a disinformant in the UFO community. Mm-hmm. And there are other things that happen after that to do with the, uh, the MJ-12 documents and Linda Howe and stuff, which I, I confess I don't know an awful lot about, but my understanding is, again, he was, you know, this was still in the same time frame in the early 1980s, and he was still operating very much under orders. Um, now, given that he's got that history, it would make sense for the powers that be to insert Rick's details into that initial anonymous email to make sure that there was a kind of fuse in the circuit, that there was the plausible deniability in the story, so that if anything went wrong with the story, if it backfired, if it wasn't accepted, if it was disbelieved, if it didn't go down well, you know, then they would maybe do exactly as um, a lot of people have been saying, saying, oh, wait a minute, this is a whole load of baloney because it all came from Rick Doty's IP address. Okay, case closed. You know, what a beautiful um, escape for the powers that be if the story didn't go down well for them to put Rick Doty right in there at the very beginning. Yeah. And, um, and I spoke to um, uh, with Kit Green, who uh, has had extensive experience with the CIA. He works... Um, uh, at still quite a deep level in the intelligence community. This is Christopher Green, for those people who um, who may not recognize his name. If you look him up in Google, he was the guy who was running the so-called weird desk at the CIA, and he was responsible for briefing President Clinton on UFOs and stuff. And so he knows what he's doing. Um, and I met him, um, and I know him, and he told me, he said that he met somebody who showed him how you could spoof an entire email header within 30 seconds and he did it in front of his eyes. You know? yeah. Now, just because you and I can't do that, it doesn't mean to say it can't be done. Yeah. You know? um, I would have thought that this, that, you know, that if you're going to work for the CIA or the NSA or any one of those other alphabet agencies, learning how to spoof um, 
uh, internet headers is probably an intelligence 101. It must be one of the first things you learn how to do. Yeah. And so there's every reason to believe or every reason to suspect, in my opinion, that this was, you know, this wasn't anything to do with Doty at the start. He's kind of got dragged into it and he's been used as a way to discredit the story. Now, let me present the other side as well, just in case anyone accuses me of being too partial. Go for it. Some people have said, well, why on earth was Victor Martinez chosen for this, um, uh, for this job? Now, one answer on one end of the credibility spectrum is to say, well, actually, he had this ready-made specialist audience of these 130 people, which, um, which I've already mentioned a little earlier on. And yeah. That could have all, you know, and that was actually quite a good little sort of focus group, a control group to, ju uh, to judge the response of an important release of information. And he could have been chosen for that reason. The skeptics on the other end of the spectrum will say, well, Victor was chosen because he's got web TV and he hasn't got the means to trace down IP addresses and he's not a sophisticated computer user and therefore it's very easy to pull the wool over his eyes. And some people have said that. And that's the other side of the argument. Yeah. Um, I don't think that is the case. I could be wrong. And 11 and a half months on, as, as, as we've been saying as we've been talking, nobody actually can prove a thing. I can't prove I've seen the photographs. No one can prove that that was Rick who sent that 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 um, first uh, first message. Yeah. Nobody even knows for sure who it was who actually sent it. And we've got kind of weird anomalies, like the fact that um, uh, there's this guy, this elderly man with the CIA connections, um, whose ancestors contain the name Sylvester and McCoglin. But then, because I haven't released the name, somebody would say, well. Uh, how is it possible even to believe that? And so the story drags on. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Now um, that that uh, that Paul Benowitz story is really kind of a cautionary tale. Um, as you were getting into this Serbo story, were you starting to get a little worried, maybe, that you were going to end up as uh, Paul Benowitz Y2K or something, <laughs> Paul Benowitz 2.0, if you will? No. Um I had no thoughts that I was going to be driven into madness and despair. This was not, uh, that didn't enter my mind. Um, I did think earlier on this year when I first realized that, um, that Rick's IP address seemed to be the same as the address which the initial information was coming from, I thought, oh boy, you know, I wonder if this whole thing is just a complete, you know, just a complete load of hokum. Um, and uh, I subsequently satisfied myself that this wasn't the case, primarily from having the opportunity to spend quite a lot of time with Rick himself. Now, I do understand what this looks like from the outside, because yeah. very, very few of your listeners will have had the opportunity to do the same thing. But Rick, I mean, Rick actually, Rick's a nice guy. He's, um, I wouldn't mind being stuck on a desert island with him. He's a lot of fun. Um, and uh, if he was, you know, if he has been lying to me, he really deserves an Oscar. And I know a lot of other people who know him to say, no, kind of, look, come on, Rick's really got nothing to do with this whatsoever. He's just being made the, you know, he, he, uh, he's being made the full guy. He's being made the patsy for all of this. Yeah. And one of the frustrating things about um, 
this entire story is that because there's no substantive evidence to prove anything either way, it's become a war of words yeah. and it's become a war of feelings. Mm -hmm. And so um, this has been debated very aggressively on the internet. I would even go to say very unpleasantly. And I'm sure I would put a lot of a lot of my personal money on the fact that um, that that pot has been stirred by by factions within the intelligence community who do not want this story to get out. And they have been capitalizing on all the weaknesses of the story and all of the weaknesses of the story behind the story in order to rubbish it as much as they possibly can do. And I'm pretty convinced that, that one of the things that's going on here is that there's a CIA faction that is trying to undermine what looks to be a DIA faction's positive work and things are very complicated behind the scenes but I can't, sure. I, I can't prove that either yeah um, okay moving along in the in the chronology here of the Serpo story it's late January 06 uh, this is probably one of the few like specific uh, postings that I'm going to reference the text of kind of um, and that is because there's a, a, an even more interesting sea change in uh, the portrayal of the evens um, in this journal entry that's posted on the 28th of January, uh, it details uh, a dispute between the humans who have landed on Serpo and the Evens. And up until then, for the previous three months, the Evens were this happy-go-lucky crew, and now they're uh, they're doing some kind of biological experiment on on one of the deceased humans uh, on Serpo. Uh, talk about that sort of uh, change in the portrayal of the Evens, and what do you think that means in the big picture? Yeah, good point. Okay. Well, I have no idea whether that is true or false, but that's one of the stories that I didn't want to post. I mean, I thought, God, you know, what are people going to think? This is a complete reversal in the picture that had been painted, just as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I checked with Victor Martinez, and Victor then told me that he had had this, um, this cloning – well, no, actually – let me back up on that because there's a twist to that story. I had an anonymous email, another anonymous email, um, through the contact through the Serpo website contact form back in December, mm -hmm. saying there's more to this story than meets the eye. One of the crew member died. One of the crew members died en route and was and was cloned. And I actually went to some technical detail about yeah. the cloning that I ran past Kit Green, who is. Um, a neurosurgeon at Wayne Medical University. And he said, yeah, you know, this rings true. This was written by somebody who knew a few medical words and who used them correctly. This was not invented by a kid. Victor took this message, ran it past his anonymous source, and his anonymous source get back to him saying, yes, this is what happened, but don't mention it to anybody. Yeah. Um, because this story must never get out. Oh. You know, and so Victor did as he was told, and I did I was, and I did as I was told. And then suddenly, in January, this story that Victor was told in December must not get out was suddenly being told in all its gory glory. You know, yeah. And um, and that was more evidence for somebody new at the steering wheel who was making different kinds of decisions about what information should be released. Yeah. Now, it also indicates, and here we're just all guessing together, that maybe initially 
the the sort of planned storyline was that the Ebens would be presented as a sort of friendly and harmless and, you know, docile and unthreatening and, you know, kind of goofy, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and in other words, you know, just keep it to that and don't mention the more sinister side of things. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly there was um, another policy or strategy that seemed to be being rolled out um, after after the gap of um, six to eight weeks or something like that. It says, okay, let's tell it as it is. Actually, these Ebens aren't as friendly, as unthreatening as we thought. They've actually got a lot of um, uh, high-tech capability. They may seem to have some endearing kind of quasi-human characteristics, but actually they work in a completely alien way because they were dismembering this dead um, team member's body and cloning it and doing all kinds of horrific things and weren't even thinking twice about it and even understand why the team was getting so upset. And so, you know, that really is a sort of creepy, chilling depiction of a possible alien worldview. It's like, well, of course, you know, look, uh, it's like I can do anything I like with this body. It's dead. What are you worried about? You know, Um, which is not a human way of looking at things and which is rather chilling. It's the kind of thing you find in a horror film. And then, of course, after that, just as we were kind of braced to expect more, then suddenly that all went quiet. And then after that, you know, um, it sort of all all went docile again and there were just some some few bits and pieces and, and everything's kind of tailed out. And as we were mentioning a little while ago, we just don't know whether there's going to be any more. Yeah. And yeah. whether we'll ever know the answers to this. Um, uh, to continue on sort of the storyline here, then after that, in February, uh, all that was received was a strange diagram. I'm, I'm not positive yet what it was, either the power system or a ship itself. And it was Sundial. Apparently, later on, Victor received confirmation that this weird diagram that was labeled just as Eben Object was was the sundial, which was a sort of one of the core components of the story, because this is the way that this high-tech race measured their time, you know, which, of course, is another thing that made a lot of people walk away from the story because they couldn't yeah. um, see how that could possibly be the case. Um, yeah, and that was contentious, and I know exactly what you're going to say, because somebody who is very smart and very accurate discovered that it came from an architect's um, drawing stencil. And they they went so far as to specify the exact drawing stencil. And there's absolutely no doubt that they're correct. This is exactly what it was. Um, but even that was not enough to sink the story, because then if you go back to how long that drawing stencil had been around for, it had been around since the early 1960s. And in their 45 tons of stuff, they may well have taken a drawing stencil with them. Exactly. And, um, and Victor Martinez said, because by now the ball was back in his court again, he said that he checked it out with the anonymous source, and he was told that, yeah, you know, um, this is one of the things they took with him, and this was drawn by the team commander when he was sitting... Um, uh, looking at this sundial, which is a slightly complicated, fairly small object. Um, and he wasn't a very good draftsman, and so he used this drawing stencil. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, no, is that true? I haven't got a clue. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to cover that part as we as we sort of head throughout the year of Serpo. Um, and then the next big event in the Serpo story, of course, is in March when... Uh, released was sort of um, a 
uh, how would I describe it? Uh, the Serpo, the Eben language, I guess. I'm not even sure how it was written. It was just sort of a block of strange symbols. Yep. Uh, talk a little bit about that posting. I, well, there's nothing really to say. Um, one of the things that has surfaced periodically in ufology, as far as I'm aware, is the whole idea of alien language. Yeah. Um, and um, a little while ago, I was contacted by somebody in Norway who gave me his samples of the alien written language that he said he had received through automatic writing. Then there's the script that is supposed to have been seen on the um, on the I beams in the wreckage of the Roswell craft, mm -hmm. and then there are various other contactees who have um, who have had samples of alien writing um, uh, in various books that have been published, yeah. and none of it matches with anything else. Oh, you know, really? It's all different. Huh. Now, that doesn't mean anything in particular because if you look on our own planet. You know, we've got we've got English, and uh, I mean the English script. I should say the Roman script as it is. We've got Arabic, we've got Cyrillic, yeah. we've got Thai, we've got Chinese, we've got Japanese, and we've got um, probably several dozen other forms of script which I can't even name. I'm sure. Um, that doesn't mean that you know that that it's all bogus. And if exactly. we're dealing with a number of different alien species, it's entirely it's entirely plausible or even to be expected that the script would be different. Um, I think some people have tried to analyze this sample of script. I don't think anyone's made anything of it. It's another just piece of kind of, it's a bit of standalone evidence. Yeah. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Because the critics will just say, well, of course, you know, this, you know, this is the kind of thing that could have been produced by a monkey. You know, um, it doesn't mean a damn thing because you don't know what it means. You don't know what the characters represent. You haven't got any kind of translator. You haven't got anything. Um, you don't know whether um, it's instructions how to, you know, how to create element 115 or, or whether it's a shopping list. You've got no idea what this thing is. Yeah. And so as a standalone snippet of information, it doesn't correlate or triangulate with anything else in the Serpo story. And it's one of the things, you know, that made Rick Doty say, you know, in his own words, you know, that if he'd been managing this release, it would have been a class act. Um, there's just, I mean, it's almost, it's almost as if whoever's been behind this release has kind of reached blind into some kind of a grab bag and just, you know, produced whatever it was that they happened to find in their hands. Yeah. There doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason to it. There doesn't seem to be any sequence, any connection between the various releases. And yet, although that's incredibly frustrating for you and for me and for just about everybody else, it it does invite the question, you know, of, well, if this was a carefully crafted hoax coming from the intelligence community with 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 a lot of thought and money and experience behind it they would have made a much better job of it yeah. you know and it just looks like a mess that does it for this week's edition of been all of america audio big thanks to bill ryan for coming on the show we're going to continue our conversation on Project Serpo next week as we explore the tumultuous final months of the story and discuss the whole big picture of Serpo. You can find out more information on Bill Ryan at the following websites at www.serpo.org or www.
projectcamelot.org. Moving right along now, it's time for the All of America Audio listener feedback. And we have this week perhaps one of the most hilarious emails I've ever received. The subject line is Lance slash Hitler slash Himmler. And the email comes from Anonymous. Here's what Anonymous had to say. I think you should be ashamed of yourself for putting such trash on the internet. At least you're not charging anyone for it, I suppose. Don't you think in a world where there are so many serious issues facing us, you could use your show to actually enlighten people rather than flinging this esoteric mud in their faces? Your contempt for your fellow human beings absolutely amazes me. I can only assume you are doing this as some far right-wing plot to undermine civic values by turning people into idiots. This comes from Anonymous. I really don't even know where to begin on this one, Anonymous, but for starters, I'm going to have to assume that you're writing to us about the Jerry E. Smith episode of Ben All America Audio last season that covered the Holy Lance, also known as the Spear of Destiny, thus the title Lance slash Hitler slash Himmler because there was additional discussion on Hitler and Nazi Antarctic bases and what have you. So I presume that's what you're writing to us about, Anonymous, and by that token, I guess you are at least 10 months behind the rest of the Banal of America audio listening audience, so you really need to get with it. You're really behind the times here, Anonymous. Following uh, that little clarification, yes, you are correct. We are not charging anyone for it, but of course we do take donations, so if you're not enraged by our content, feel free to donate and help us keep putting this trash on the internet. Unfortunately, Anonymous, you really don't offer me any guest suggestions or topic suggestions that I could use to actually enlighten people, as you say. So I suppose I'm going to have to continue flinging the esoteric mud. You are incorrect that I have contempt for my fellow human beings, although I will say I am slightly disappointed with the human race in general. But that does not extend, of course, to the Banal America audio listeners. They have done their homework, they are looking for answers, just like I am, so I consider them exemplary human beings. And finally, unfortunately, I have to burst your bubble here. I am not a part of a far right-wing plot to undermine civic values, nor, unfortunately, am I a part of a far left-wing plot to undermine civic values. I am doing this all as a part of a quest for answers in the esoteric world, and not at the behest of any sinister organization. Hopefully that clears up some of your concerns, Anonymous. Thank you for making my day, my week, and possibly my month with your hilarious email. If you have a question, comment, thoughts on a previous episode, or a guest suggestion, feel free to click the contact button at banalofamerica.com. It's in the top right-hand corner. That will put you well on the way to getting your email read here on Banal of America Audio listener feedback. And, of course, you can always send it to boaaudio at hotmail.com. Wrapping up the program, I want to thank Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., and Ralph Molesworth of BanalofAmerica.com for your help and support with the audio series and the website. If you're only listening to Banal of America Audio and you're not checking out the reading material at BanalofAmerica.com, you're only getting half the story. BanalofAmerica.com, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. If you're a long-time Banal of America Audio listener, an appreciative newcomer, or you're just simply full of holiday cheer and you want to make a donation to help keep the audio series up and running, click the PayPal button at banalofamerica.com, make a donation. Every little bit helps, and all donations go towards paying for Banal of America Audio and making sure that the show is free and available to all of our great listeners. Next week on Banal of America Audio, we wrap it up with Bill Ryan. We're talking about the rest of the Serpo story, how it all panned out through 2006, big picture analysis of the Serpo story, what it all might mean, and in addition to that, Bill brings in his partner, Kerry Cassidy, for 
a lengthy discussion on their new endeavor, Project Camelot, which is an internet video interview series that you can find at projectcamelot.org. We're going to talk about how they find their guests, how they guard against potential hoaxers, the overall goals of Project Camelot, and how it all came about. It's the first time ever we've had two guests on at the same time, so definitely tune in for that historic edition of Been All of America Audio. And with that, we wrap up another edition of Been All of America Audio. Thank you very much for listening, folks. You'll be hearing from me next week. Until then, this is Tim Benall, signing off.